Hello, I'm Petra Vernon. Welcome back to my podcast, Mostly Essays. Uh, this time we'll be continuing the essay written by Helen M. Luke from her selected essay uh, collection the, entitled The Heart, The Laughter at the Heart of Things. We'll be continuing a uh, self-entitled, the same title, The Laughter at the Heart of Things essay. Uh, but before we do, just to recap that Helen M. Luke was born in 1904 and that she received her master's degree in French and it, it, Italian literature from uh, Somerville College and she became deeply interested in the work of C.G. Young and studied at the Young Institute in Zurich. Uh, after she moved to the United States in 1949, she established an analytical practice in L.A and she founded the Apple Farm Community in Michigan in 1962. She also has other essays entitled The Way of the Woman and Dark Wood to White Rose, as well as Old Age Journey into Simplicity. To continue the essay, The Laughter at the Heart of Things. Shrilish said again, as quoted by Young, man is only fully human when he is at play. Let us look at some characters created for us by very great storytellers and explorers of darkness in our literature. Characters who awaken in us that kind of laughter that is beyond all analysis. Through these images, we experience the wonder of that sense of humor which breaking through the bonds of cause and effect thinking and superficial morality touches the innocence of the fool and the child in us and brings with it compassion and love. For instance, in Dickens' novel, The Dombey and Son, who can ever forget Mr. Toots? In our day, he would have been labeled with some of those empty collective words, handicapped, retarded, brain damaged, etc., and treated accordingly. But even today, one feels he would have transcended all that. There are many comic characters in Dickens, some great, greats like Toots, others like Captain Coodle in the same novel who are mildly funny, though somewhat boring, and who do not awaken that fundamental laughter at all. Why? Well, because Mr. Toots and his peers are wholly themselves as a small child is wholly him or herself and have at the same time a strange kind of natural wisdom that cannot be defined. Mr. Toots, as G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton so beautifully said of him, always got all the outside things wrong, but all the inside things right. His natural emotions are wholly involved in what he does and feels, but he always assures everyone that it is of no consequence, as indeed he knows in the humility of this extraordinarily accurate sense of proportion. Susan Nepper, whom he eventually marries, says of him, immediately I see that innocent, in the hall, I burst out laughing first, and then I choked. The second immortal image, whom one hardly dares to approach, is Shakespeare's Sir John Falstaff. How can one speak of the essential innocence of the fool in that fat, drunken, cowardly thief and deceiver? Yet, it is there, miraculously there, and he inspires so much true laughter 
so much love and delight both among those who have been the most injured by him in the play and in all those blessed with a true sense of humor who read and reread his story that again we are left with a vision of wonder and delight beyond that final gateway into freedom this miracle is of course absent from the falstaff of the merry wives of windsor who is primarily a figure of farce we may laugh at this falstaff but we cannot love him in henry the 4th and henry the 5th however that kind of laughter disappears and we start judging his horrible qualities we missed the point absolutely he is as he is and retains that extraordinary divine quality through it all he truly loves sack as he truly loves life if i had a thousand sons the first humane principle i would teach them should be to forswear thin portations and to addict addict themselves to sack Henry IV, Part Two, Part Four of Part Three. On the rational level, his long pian to sack is therefore indeed nonsense. But on Falstaff's lip, it is a gorgeous celebration of joy in life. Let us indeed forswear that the thin portations that we so often give our souls to drink with dreary solemnity. Let it be noted also that we shall never see him actually drunk. Never see him actually drunk. He misleads the young prince indeed, though we somehow feel that Hal was able to become a match more whole person, a much more whole person because of that bad behavior or company. For Falstaff creates laughter of the deepest kind all around him, and there is no why about it. Even the Chief Justice, most reasonably rebuking him for his outrageous behavior, is unconsciously won over. We feel the tragedy of this rejection, harsh, however necessary, by the prince, now king. And in Henry V, we are deeply moved by the account of his illness and death when he was nursed by mistress quickly. The woman whom he had almost ruined financially and who loved him nevertheless. Nah, sure, he's not in hell. He's in Arthur's bosom. If ever man, if, if ever man went to Arthur's bosom, a might a finer end and went away and it had been any Christmas child. And Bardolph, his much abused servant says, would I were with him whether in heaven or in hell. How splendid a tribute. Laughter and tears come together as we read this scene. If we hear it with a sense of humor in which these two realities are always present. Early in Henry IV, Part II, Falstaff still to seems to recognize for a moment his extraordinary vocation as a kind of divine fool. The brain of this foolish compounded clay man is not able to invent anything that tends to laughter more than I invent or is invented on me. I'm not only witness, I'm not only witty in myself, but the cause that wit is in other men. And later he surely has his value straight when after the young sober Duke John of Lancaster has said pompously, I, in my condition, shall better speak of you than you deserve. Falstaff says to himself, I, would you had but the wit 
twere better than your dupedom. Good faith, this seems this this same young sober-blooded boy doth not love me, nor man cannot make him laugh. In our own time, the voice of Christopher Alexander is being heard by more and more seekers. He has written and is writing of architecture, of building as a way to the creation of wholeness in the individual and in the community. And he speaks the same truths as do all the other contemplatives throughout the ages. In a seminar on his, on of, of his on tape, one can hear his belly laugh and recognize it as and recognize it as of the same age of that of Young and uh, Charles Williams has described here of the same nature as that which bubbles up with our tears as we meet and experience such characters Toots and Falstaff. In the title, The Timeless Way of Building, Alexander writes about the long discipline, the ethical phase of the search for self-knowledge that teaches us the true relationship between ourselves and our surroundings. We become then at last to the perception which he calls egoless. And then he says, we may pass through the gate which leads you to the state of mind in which you live so close to your own heart that you no longer need a language, the old discipline and it's utterly ordinary. It is what is in you already. There is no skill required. It is only a question of whether you will allow yourself to be ordinary and do what comes naturally to you and what seems most sensible to your own heart and not to the images which false learning has quoted on your quoted onto your minds. When we will consent to be utterly ordinary, to be simple instead of wise, then the humors will transform into that sense of humor that brings sheer delight in that ordinariness, in the joy of what is. Then our instinctive emotions our moods, the melancholic, the choleric, the sanguine or phlegmatic humors will no longer possess us and project themselves around us in the unconscious. These projections always add to the weight that breeds a desperate need to create drama and excitement in the environment through the hidden greed that is a kind of anti-play. Instead, in that perception of, of wonder, that is the sense of humor, we can begin to play in the freedom of sim and simplicity of the child. No longer will there be any need to strive after anything, especially not after the spiritual, because the spirit itself would be present in each moment. As the old monk who was the author of The Cloud of the Unknowing in the 14th century wrote in his little in his other little treatise, the book of Privy Counseling, after the long work of learning to know your own sinfulness, stop thinking about what you are. Know only that you are what you are. Remember that you possess an innate ability to know that you are. At this level, the East and West with their different languages are at one. I quote from a book called Be As You Are, edited by David Goodman about 
Siri Ramana Maharash, Maharshi, 1890-1950. That most simple and direct of Hindu sages whose laughter and compassion reaches us through his words and his silences, answering a question he said, there is no greater mystery than this, that being the reality we seek to gain, reality. We think there is something hiding our reality and that it must be destroyed before the reality is gained. It is ridiculous. A day will dawn when you will yourself laugh at your past efforts. That which will be on the day you laugh is also here and now. This is the laughter at the heart of things. This is the divine comedy of being.